This morning, uh, we've moved our deep dive from the early part of the service to the later, so actually what I'm giving you is not the message. It's a deep dive, which is our way of kind of walking through some stuff that's in the Scripture that really kind of doesn't fit within the scope of a message. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about what I think are the most fascinating, and I'm quite sure you will as well, pieces of Scripture. Have you ever decided to just read the Bible, like made one of those really big commitments that I'm going to pick up the Bible and read starting in Genesis and just... I'm not going to stop till it stops. This is a, I mean, this is the sort of thing that most of us never seem to be able to do. But if you've ever done that, you've come across these things called genealogies. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about, the genealogy? What word signifies best the genealogies? <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to sit down, Steve. I'm done. Now that they're bad, I mean, I just, you know, what can you do? We don't talk about this stuff. Why, why would we? They're bad. They're, Steve told us. Contradistinctive to that, I think they're, they're, they're important, and we're going to talk about why they're important. But before I do, when I was a kid, we used the King James Version of the Bible. Have you ever tried to pick up, if you have decided to read the Bible, have you ever read the King James Version? In the genealogies in the King James Version, as well as many other uh, versions that are kind of older, they use the word begat. Genealogies are lists of people's names. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And by that, I always wondered in Sunday school as a little kid, what does begat mean? And I would ask the teacher, and their face would turn red. And they, what does it mean to beget something, you know? Uh, ask your mom, you know? <laughs> Better yet, ask your dad. And when I asked my dad, he was about as concerned as my Sunday school teacher. Anyway, so so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. And by the end of the 13th, so-and-so you are like, no more. I do not want to beget anything. I don't want to hear about begetting. I'm done with begetting, okay? But the genealogies in the Bible, they're there, and they're all across the Bible, and we're called to think this book is important. And even the small verses, the ones that we tend to think of as insignificant, even the ones that Steve thinks are bad, he just left the room. Did you notice that? I really made him mad. Even the ones that Steve thinks are bad, they're actually important passages of Scripture, In Matthew chapter 3, there's one of these that refers back to Genesis, and we're talking about it because Genesis might have more genealogies than any other book of the Bible. But in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, actually picks up from that place in Genesis and takes off. Okay? And and you read this in Matthew 1, 3. It says, Judah was with the father, was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you're like me, when you read these things, these names don't mean that much. They, the, the reason why they're not all that interesting is because you go, well, uh, well, Judah, I remember him from Tim preaching about it. He's one of Joseph's brothers. But Perez and Zerah, who are they? And Tamar, why is she important? But it's a good time to mention who Tamar is. There's a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to Tamar. She's not a man, she's a woman. And in genealogies, you rarely ever get a woman's name. And in the genealogy of Matthew, you get four names. And Tamar is the first of those. Tamar is somebody's wife. Whose wife is she? Somebody who knows. Say it. Nobody wants to admit they know. She's Judah's wife, right? But she's also Judah's daughter-in-law. Oh. There's a scandal, right? Now, we're used to scandals. We can see them on CNN anytime we want. But we're not used to them in the Bible. And if you don't read the genealogies, one of the things you might miss is some of these very important scandals. Matthew tells us that this line has in its 
listings a woman. And that woman, Tamar, was somebody's wife and daughter-in-law at the same time. And what's more is one of the sons that came from her is in the family tree of Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of this woman, scandalous as she may be. Now, do I have your attention now? In the middle of the Joseph story, there's one chapter that doesn't make any sense outside of the genealogies, and that's Genesis chapter 38. And in Genesis chapter 38, we read about the story that I suspect changed Judah's life. He had a son, and he married that son off to Tamar. And after a while of being married, God, had said, God said that that son wasn't doing what was pleasing in the sight of God. And when you look at Judah, you realize that he probably didn't raise children that knew how to please God because he didn't do a very good job pleasing God either. He's the one who led the charge against Joseph, actually sending Joseph into slavery. And so Judah has this son who's displeasing to God, and he actually dies. Well, in that time and era, when you were a widow, you were in serious trouble if there was no sons to take care of you. And so what would happen, and it sounds absolutely scandalous, but it wasn't in their day, But there is a second son. And so Judah says, listen, you must go father a child with Tamar because otherwise there's no social security system. There's no pension plan. This woman will be on the street. And that happens, but that son goes in and actually doesn't father a child. He just acts like he's going to. And he dies as well. Well, Judah does the math. And he says, listen, I've lost two sons to this woman. She's literally a man-eater of a different sort. I'm not giving her my third. She sent, he sends her back to her father's house, and he says, while my, my third son grows older, you wait there. But she gets older, and his son gets older, and she gets older yet, and he, his son gets older yet. And at some point, she realizes this son is of age, and Judah's not doing the honorable thing by her, and she's left childless. And it's at this point that she hatches a scheme. Judah's wife dies. And he's heading up to so and such a place and and she realizes it, she knows it, and the rumor is out there. So she puts herself alongside the road and she dresses like a harlot. And Judah, having just lost his wife, decides he needs some companionship. And without knowing it's his one-time daughter-in-law, he goes into her and he fathers twin baby boys. Now, fast forward from this, Nobody, she could conceal her identity, but she could not conceal her pregnancy. Seven, eight months later, you know, what happened was what everybody knows happens. She gets a little bigger, and it's a scandal of a different sort in their community, and everybody says this woman needs to be stoned, and the, right, the person who has the right to do that is the father-in-law because he's the person who, whose reputation has been wrecked in their culture. And so they call Judah, and they say, listen, Tamar's with child. She's a mess. She somehow did something wrong. She must have. She's pregnant. They call her into the town square and Judah says, let's kill her. And then she holds up these two things and in that day they would have been what today would be considered a driver's license and a credit card. And she said, just look for me, if you will, at whose name is on these pieces of identity. And they both said Judah. They both said Judah. And it's at that point Judah says this line. He says, she is more righteous than I. And he realizes who that prostitute really was. Now, is this story scandalous or what? In the New Testament, there's a story where a woman caught in adultery, and adultery was one of those sins which was absolutely a capital punishment, not just in the ancient world, but especially in Jewish society. And this woman is dragged in front of Jesus, and Jesus says what? Do you remember his line? 
person who's not committed any sin, that person can throw the first stone. And slowly the crowd dissipates as everybody walks away from this woman, leaving her unharmed because they realized when they looked inside their own heart, they were wrong. They were maybe even more wrong than she. Like Judah, they were saying, she is more righteous than I. Did Tamar sin? Yes, right? Did Judah sin? Well, absolutely, he admitted it. Sin is all over this story. Now here's the point. When we get to the genealogies, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, all of a sudden they look startlingly interesting from this lens. Wouldn't you agree? They're covering up, or maybe not covering up, maybe they're highlighting a scandal that makes a point, a larger point. And what is that point? That point is that Jesus comes from scandal. Now you look inside your own heart. You look at your parents, your grandparents. Maybe you don't even know, but you come from scandal too. Right? Maybe your last six months has looked scandalous. Maybe your last 18 months or last 10 years or you remember this act that nobody knows you did way back when. But listen, today God knows. And what's more is God put this woman in the genealogy of Jesus to remind us that he knows and he can redeem. If he can take the life story of Tamar and take something like that and turn it into something as redemptive as Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, he can transform anything from bad to good, from darkness to light. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? Maybe the begats aren't so boring as, as all that. That was a deep dive. It's come to the end. I'm supposed to close before I go. You know, things like this can make you preach. You know what I'm saying? And it's at this point I'm not allowed to, and Tim is supposed to. So I'm going to sit down before I blow it. All right? Something starts happening at this point in the story. You know, uh, last week we were able to, to see some pretty spectacular moments in the life of Joseph. It was awesome. I mean, when, you, when we like pulled that thing apart and looked at the moment of forgiveness in Joseph's life, wasn't that just awesome? It was, like, it was so much fun to watch how like, the life of Jesus is revealed through the life of Joseph and how when everything pulls him towards revenge, he conquers it all with forgiveness. I was, like, studying that thing was just so much fun. But what's happened is, is the, the story's really taken a turn at this point. And in order to understand the turn, you have to go back to the beginning of the story. If you remember when we were starting this series, I said we got eight weeks coming in the story of Joseph. It's going to be eight weeks, two months ahead of us where we're studying this book of Joseph. And so, will you stand with me and read the scripture? And we stood to read the scripture, and I said, this is the account of, this is the beginning of chapter 37, this is the account of, and it didn't say Joseph. Who did it say? Jacob. It said, this is the account of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, is Joseph's dad. And they're about to give us chapter after chapter after chapter about Joseph's life, but it told us it's the account of Jacob. And the reason is because we're realizing that this is, Joseph's life is just part of a bigger story about the story of Jacob's family. And that's the point that God's making. And we talked about, you know, the, the movie that I had in my head where there's all these different storylines and the movie's name is Jake and you hear these different uh, individuals and the plots of their life. And it's not till the end of the story that you realize the thing that binds them together is they all have this dad named Jake who's in the last scene. And you realize that the entire story has actually been a story about Jake, but you never got to meet him until the end. You know, that it's just been about his influence on their lives. And that's what's happening here is this is actually the story of Jacob. But what happened is the camera lens, this is really hard to do with one hand, 
but the, the camera angle, the lens was like out on, it was a little bit of a wide angle, um, and you were seeing Jacob's family. But then uh, Jacob was showing favoritism to his son, and his sons were mistreating Joseph. But he gets shipped off to Egypt, and when he does, the camera just zooms in, right in on Joseph. And you're looking at Joseph's life. And while there's all sorts of stuff going on in Jacob's family that whole time, we have no idea what it is, because the scriptures aren't showing us that. They're showing us Joseph's life. And you're watching about what Potiphar's wife does to him, about what, how he gets bailed on in prison, and you know all these different things in his life. But then last week, we saw the camera angle back off a little bit. Why? Because his brothers re-enter. And when his brothers re-enter, all of a sudden the focus shifts again. And it's not just on the personal life of Joseph. We're reminded that, that God's got a bigger plan, and he's actually telling a bigger story. And the story is not just about Joseph, it's about his brothers. And so he's able to save his brothers. Uh, because you remember this, this great moment when he forgives them, it's because he remembers that God is actually using him to save his brothers, and God reminds him of this. And so because of it, he doesn't blame his brothers he blames God or praises God for what actually took place. And instead of blaming his brothers, he praises God and he realizes, hey, this isn't about the story of Joseph. This isn't about my life. This is about what God is doing in my family. And he put, I went through all this nasty stuff, but it's so that I could save my family. And that's awesome. And so he begins to see his life in context of the story of his family instead of just his own life. And it's an awesome thing. But now, this week, it happens again. The camera angle backs off and it gets wider and it backs up and you see something more than just his brothers re-enter the story. Chapter 46 is where we are and you can stand with me as we read. We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 46 and then we're going to flip over to 47 and read a few verses there. Okay, so chapter 46 verses 1 to 4. So Israel set out with all that was his and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And then if you uh, have your scriptures, you can flip over to chapter 47 and move all the way down to verse 27 of that next chapter. And it says, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Thanks. You can have a seat. So this is what's happened. Has God been speaking throughout this story of Joseph? Has he spoken, like through visions, dreams, that type of thing? He's spoken all the time. Who has he primarily spoken to in the story of Joseph? To Joseph. Yeah, someone said it. He's been speaking to Joseph. He, he, he gave the dream to Joseph when he was a kid, and then he reminded of, uh, him of the dreams. He gave him interpretations to all sorts of other people's dreams, and he's been communicating with Joseph. Now, all of a sudden... Another character re-enters the story. And according to Genesis chapter 37, where the story started, this is who the story is actually about. This is the account of Jacob. And Jacob re-enters the story, and he's headed down to Egypt. Now this is where it ended. After, G after Joseph had forgiven his brothers, he sent them back to get their dad. Right? And he said, go back and get dad. And what did he tell them not to do on the way? Yeah, not to quarrel, not to argue, not to fight. 
Because he knows that like there's tension in the room after all the stuff that's taken place. And while he's forgiving them, he wants to make sure they're forgiving each other. So they head back and they get Jacob. And Jacob gets the fantastic news that his beloved son Joseph is actually alive. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And it's phenomenal. It's wonderful. What's more is, is Joseph is in charge of all of Egypt at this point. And while the globe is in a, there's a global famine as far as they're concerned, there's only one place to get food. And it's from this guy who had this vision from God. God, who stored up all this food. Oh, and by the way, it's Joseph, your son, who you thought was dead. Everything worked out phenomenally. Okay. And so now his brothers come and get him and they're going to head back to Egypt where they can live now and, and live off the food that, that uh, Joseph stored up for him. So he's starting to head down to Egypt. Now it seems like he should be incredibly excited. And I'm sure on one level he really is. And yet he says, it says in, in chapter 46 there that God showed up into a, in a vision to him to reassure him and, and we're saying, why does he need to be reassured? Everything's working out. Well, see, there's one other piece of information that if you go back further in the story, you recognize and you remember. And that's that he's the, his, Jacob's dad is Isaac, whose dad is Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise. And he was promised that a mighty nation would come from him and that they would settle in this land of Canaan. And then his dad, Isaac, was also reminded of the same thing, that a great nation would come from them and they would settle in this land of Canaan. Anybody know where the land of Canaan is currently, today? Israel. Yeah, it's, it's Israel, where Israel is right now, where the Israelites are still living today. They had some hiatus. They haven't always been there. And that's kind of always the way it was with them. But the, at any rate, here he is in Canaan and God said, this is the land that I promised you that I'm going to give to you and I'm going to raise up a nation for you. So now he's so excited. He's going to see Joseph and he's walking down to Egypt. But you can kind of get the feel that he's looking back over his shoulder and he's like, this is great. I'm so glad Joseph's alive and I'm so glad we're being provided for. But that land back there, I thought that's where you told us we were going to settle. Like that was, that was our land. That was the promised land. I mean, this is still the land of Egypt. That's not our land. I, I, it's cool that you're providing for us, but what's going on? And so God shows up again. And he reminds Jacob. You remember the last time that he reminded someone of a vision, another dream in the story? Yeah, Joseph. He reminds Joseph. Remember, when does he remind Joseph of the dream? When he's talking to his brothers. And the reason he does this is because he wants to remind Joseph, hey, this isn't your brothers who did this. This is me. Okay? And he reminds him that he's been the sovereign God, the one who's sovereign over all of this and gets him to trust him again so that he can forgive his brothers. He does the exact same thing in this moment. So Joseph there was able to see his life wasn't just about him. It was a bigger picture that God was working out for his family. And now what God's doing is he does the same thing for Jacob. Jacob earlier in his life had been told that he was going to have a great nation and it was going to be back here. And his fathers were told that. But God reminds him in this moment and he says, basically he says to him, Jacob, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, but just trust me, I got it. I told you I'd do this. I'm going to. I'm going with you down there to Egypt. Sometimes God does stuff that doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense to him maybe, but it doesn't make sense to us, you know? And, and God sometimes reassures us. Sometimes he just asks us to, to step up and have faith. Other times he, he finds a way to reassure us and he reassures Jacob. And Jacob's faith gets stronger and stronger at this point. See, now what happens is, is Jacob starts to realize that his life isn't just about himself. In the same way that Joseph realized his life and his pain and all this journey down to Egypt wasn't just about him, Jacob starts to realize that his family and his life isn't just for him. 
It's about a bigger picture. There's this nation that God's going to bring out. And so he starts to see himself not just as a dad of a family that he's got to protect, but the patriarch of an emerging nation. And we read in chapter 47, uh, in verse 27, it says, Now Israel, or now the Israelites, settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. This is the first time that, who is Israel? What would you say? Jacob. Jacob is Israel. This is the first time in the scriptures that the word Israel is used for anything other than to refer to Jacob. All of a sudden it says that Jacob and his people came and settled in Egypt. And it says the Israelites. And it starts using it in terms of, uh, it uses corporate pronouns. Is that what you say? Corporate pronouns? Collect, whatever, when it's a bunch of people, they and, and them instead of you and him. And collective pronouns? Plural pronouns. Thank you. There we go. I needed a teacher to help me out. Thanks. Um, so plural pronouns. They start using plural pronouns when it says Israel. Now all of a sudden it's they settled here. And instead of he settled here, they did. And Israel becomes a national term because Israel's life is no longer just about himself. He's about something bigger. And what's more is, is he gets the memo. It's not just that God's doing it. He starts to realize my life isn't just about me. And it's not just about my family. It's about something bigger. And when he recognizes this, he starts to play the part in his latter years about becoming a patriarch for this nation that's going to emerge. Now, uh, well, we're going to keep going. Yeah, okay. So I want to pick that story up here in, uh, in chapter 47 and verse 28. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. Wow, he was old. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my right thigh. That was like a symbol for covenant at the time. It's kind of weird. And promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I'll do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. See, it's so cool. Like, at this point, Jacob, throughout the story so far, he's been the guy who's, like, locked by fear. He was scared because he lost his son, and so now he wouldn't let his other son, Benjamin, go to Egypt. He was always freaking out. He was always concerned. He was always, like, you know, depressed and was talking about how he's going to go down to his grave, but he's been reinvigorated. Because God says, because he saw Joseph came back, and he saw that God was involved in the whole thing. And now he, he's beginning to understand this promise that God's making, that all of this stuff that happened, it's not just so that they could eat and survive, it's because God's going to make this great nation out of them. And it's like, wow, and he gets reinvigorated. And instead of being just worried about his own personal little context and defined by his past hurts, all of a sudden he starts having hope for the future. And he starts rising up in faith again. And, and you, the way you see it here is he says to Joseph, he says, look, basically he's like, God told me that when I come down to Egypt, I'm going to die because he said, you're going to close my eyes. And he's like, there's nothing greater than being with you right now. I'm so excited to be with you as my son again. However, there's something you've got to know that when I die, I don't, I don't want my bones to stay here with you guys. 
take them back and bury me back up there in Canaan. Because even though God said that he was gonna you were going to close my eyes here, he also told me that we're going to settle back there. So home is not Egypt. Home's over there. And he steps out in faith and he says, bury me back there and let it be a sign to all the people in this family that home is not Egypt, but home's back there. And this guy who used to be scared and worried and only worried about his family and himself all of a sudden has expanded to becoming a man of faith and a patriarch who believes that God's going to do this great work. And it's awesome. It's really cool to watch his perspective change. And so he begins the work that a patriarch's supposed to do, and that's that they hand out the blessing and the inheritance and the birthright and all the stuff that the, that the uh, patriarch is supposed to do when blessing a family and starting the nation and all of that. And so he starts the work of that in chapter 48. So you can look in 48, and it says, Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took, sorry, distraction in my mind. It just reminded me of the rappers used to say when something was ill. It was really cool. This, yeah. <laughs> there's an old Run DMC song about you, ill. Sorry. Anyway, flashback. You know, Joseph got reminded of dreams. I just got reminded of a rap song. I, it, I don't think that was God reminding me. That was a distraction. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he has blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So what he does here is he, he starts talking about this dream he has, but not the one that he had just had. He talks about the one he had back in the day. And I don't know if Joseph ever knew this dream before. I don't know if he ever knew the promise of God because the scriptures never talk about him sharing this dream with his sons prior to this. And what's more is, is Joseph hasn't been around for forever because he's been in Egypt. So it may be that his dad's actually telling him for the first time, hey, by the way, I might not have told you this, but it's important information. We're not just a family. We're going to be a nation. God has a promise for us. And you're right now kind of running the show because you're big hotshot Joseph now. But you need to know that as big as this picture has gotten, and as, and as wide as the camera lens has gotten, and you started to see your life in context of your family and God's work of salvation for our family and everything, he's like, back the lens off even more, son, because God's going to do something that you can't even imagine. He's going to start a whole nation through us. One of the things that's important to just stop and realize here is if you're a parent or a grandparent or if you're going to be a parent or anything like that, it's imperative to know that one of the best things we can do for our kids and for our family, is to remind them of a simple thought. That life isn't as big as me and my family. That God's got a plan that's much bigger. And our job in our family is to not serve ourselves, but to serve his kingdom. And it's really important that we embed that mindset into our family. And that's what Jacob's doing here with Joseph. He's reminding him, we're about something bigger. We're about something bigger. And when you understand that, it gives us the context to talk about the irony of today, the ironic stuff that happens today. But you have to hear all that progression and how they've seen the lens get bigger and bigger and bigger in order to understand this one little thing that's about to happen. Now, here's what's about to happen. 
Jacob is going to bless his family and he's going to give them all their, their blessings and their inheritance and the birthright. Now the birthright goes to the first son. How many sons does Jacob have? Do you know? Twelve. How do you know? Well, you know because the story tells us that. But these twelve sons result in twelve what? Tribes of Israel. Yeah, so the, Israel is the nation and there's twelve tribes within Israel and each of the sons represents a tribe. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, anybody know who the firstborn son is? Reuben. Yeah, and so who's the tribe that comes from Reuben? The Reubenites. <laughs> who's the tribe that comes from Benjamin, the youngest son? The Benjamites. Yeah, you guys are sharp. <laughs> who's the tribe that comes from Judah? Uh, tribe of Judah. So uh, there's these 12 sons. But Joseph is a son. Have you ever heard about the Josephites? There is no tribe of Joseph, although actually in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, it does tell us about a tribe of Joseph. But what happens is, is in this situation, there's 12 sons, and he's going to go and bless each of his sons. But the problem is, is that the birthright that's supposed to go to the firstborn, that person gets two blessings, gets a double blessing. And so there, it ends up that there's actually, when you read the scriptures, there's actually 13 tribes. It talks all the time about the 12 tribes of Israel, but that's because one of these guys is going to get two blessings and two tribes instead of just one. Now, let me explain. Reuben is supposed to be the one who gets the, the blessing because he's the firstborn. He's supposed to be the one that gets the, the uh, birthright. But Reuben messes up. Anybody know how Reuben messes up? Anybody want to say it? Josh was talking about scandal earlier, and he said it. I was waiting for one of you guys to say it. Yeah, yeah, he, thank you, Steve. Yeah, he messes up, and he has a, uh, a sexual relationship with one of his father's concubines, uh, which is completely inappropriate. Fortunately, it was not his mother who he was with, but it was this other woman who his dad is connected to. And he defiles the marriage bed. And because of that, we're told in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 that he forfeits the right as the firstborn. Now, he forfeits the right as the firstborn, so it should go to the secondborn, right? Who is Simeon? Doesn't go to Simeon. Simeon's kind of a punk. It should go to Levi. Levi and Simeon got in trouble together because they got mad because some guys did something they shouldn't have done to their sister. And so they went and faked this whole scene and got these guys trapped and cut all of their throats and killed all these guys. They were like mass murderers. They were nuts. And, and so he's like, well, you guys aren't getting the birthright, you know? And Reuben's not getting the birthright. So the next one in line, the fourth guy, Josh talked about him this morning. Jesus comes from him. Judah. All right, so Judah, you know, we know a lot about Judah. And even though Judah has this scandalous thing and everything, he has, from his line, comes King David. And from him, his line comes Jesus. And Judah is spoken of in, in very good terms. Because even though he messed up, we all mess up, he admitted it. And he was like, I'm an idiot, you know, and, and forgive me. And, the, and God does, and it's all good. And he blesses him. However, even Judah doesn't receive the blessing of the firstborn. In, in, Second Chronicles, it, or in First Chronicles, it tells us that Joseph receives the blessing of the firstborn. He gets the birthright. Now, why does Joseph get the blessing of the, of the firstborn? Scriptures don't tell us. It doesn't tell us at all. Of course, it doesn't bother us that Joseph gets the blessing, does it? Because Joseph's been the good guy throughout the story. It's funny how it works. 
This is how it works. If, Joseph, if God does something that we don't understand and we don't agree with, as long as it works out for us, we're like, it's all good, God. You know, this is great. Good choice, man. Joseph's a great choice. And there's no need for us to question God and why he chose Joseph to receive the blessing. However, if it doesn't work out for us, all of a sudden we're like, what? That's so unfair, God. You know, and we're, and we're all frustrated. But we don't ask God to explain why Joseph got chosen. He doesn't explain. To us, it makes sense. He was the good guy in the story. He did everything right. He receives the blessing. But the Bible doesn't tell us that that's why he got the blessing. He just does. He gets the blessing. And so he's the firstborn, and what happens is he gets the blessing of the firstborn, the birthright, and so what happens is that the, the birthright gets the double portion. So each son represents a tribe in Israel, but instead Jacob says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Joseph. Instead of giving my blessing specifically to you, I'm going to take your two sons, and I'm going to bless both of them the same way that I'm blessing each of my sons. So you're going to have a double blessing. So there's two tribes that come from Joseph. Anybody know what they are? Manasseh and Ephraim. His oldest son is Manasseh. That's, the, that's his oldest son. And his younger son is Ephraim. Now, Joseph brings them into Jacob and he's going to bless them. He's going to lay his hands on them and pray over them and bless them. This isn't some weird quirky thing. This isn't something that's just Old Testament as a matter of fact. In your family, you should be laying your hands on your kids and praying for them. Just being like, God, I want you to bless and protect my kids. Help your goodness to be with them. Help them to learn the scriptures. Help them to live the way they should. It's a good thing to bless our kids. That's an important thing to do. And, and, and especially as you know the end is coming, if you know you're getting up there in years, Bless them, man. Pray blessings over their life for their future. Well, anyway, that's what Jacob's about to do as the patriarch. And Joseph brings these two little boys to him. And, and Manasseh is on Jacob's right side and Ephraim is on his left because the right hand of blessing goes to the oldest one. So here's Manasseh and Jacob's about to give the blessing to these two boys. But as he goes to pray over them and he says, God Almighty who's been with my fathers and who's with me and who's protected and provided for us, may he be with you too. And, and when he goes to do it, he switches his hands. And he lays his left hand on Manasseh, the older one. And his right hand, the right hand of blessing, he switches over and puts on the younger one, Ephraim. And he blesses the... And Joseph sees it. And Joseph's basically like this. He's like, my dad's like 140 years old. The guy doesn't know what's going on. Okay, so he walks over and he's like, he takes his hand and he's like, Dad, you got the wrong one. I know you can't see real well. Let me help you out. And he grabs his hand and he goes to put it on the other one. And Jacob says twice to him, he says... I know, Joseph. I know. This isn't dementia. I know. This isn't bad eyesight. I know. I got it. This is the way it's supposed to be. And at this point, you can feel the frustration in Joseph. Because, like, okay, it's kind of funny that Joseph is frustrated because Joseph's getting the blessing here, and he's like the second to youngest out of 12. You know, how in the world did he end up with the blessing? But we're all good with that. And Joseph's all good with that, especially, because it's the blessing coming to him. And we're all good with that, because he's the good guy in the story. But no one really asks the question, until you get to Ephraim and Manasseh, these two innocent little kids who haven't done a thing yet, and we don't see any reason why it should be switched. And all of a sudden, he switches his hands, and we're like, wait, hold up, stop the train. Why are you doing that? See, all our social conventions are challenged in this moment. And Joseph says there's a protocol. Society has a protocol, Dad, and you're breaking the protocol. This is the way it's supposed to go, and you're messing it up. And Jacob is at a place of faith in his life right now. And basically what happens is Jacob's like, I'm not playing by society's rules. I'm playing by God's rules. 
And he's at a place of faith, and he can begin to tell God's laying it on his heart to bless Ephraim. You see, when you look back across the story, you remember there was two sons, the first two sons ever born on earth. Anybody remember who they were? Cain and Abel. They both offered sacrifices to God. Whose sacrifice got accepted? Abel. Was Abel the older son or the younger son? Younger son. Cain got so mad about it, he offed his brother. Things got nasty quick after the fall at the garden. Jacob himself, was he the older brother or the younger brother? Younger brother. And he lied and connived and worked it so that he got the blessing instead of his older brother. And God still allowed it to happen and still blessed him. See, God does this thing where he doesn't always play by the rules. You know? And he's the one who made the rules. I mean, these were God's rules about the firstborn. You know, it's his deal. And then, and then he goes and breaks the rules. And you can just be like, Joseph's like, what in the world? But the funny thing is, is he just broke the rules for Joseph anyway. But we didn't ask the question until it got to the place where it didn't make sense. Sometimes God does things in our lives that don't make sense. Honestly. Sometimes he allows things to happen that don't make sense. Let me tell you what does make sense. What makes sense is that I had surgery on my shoulder. Because 11 years ago, I was dumb. And I went surfing in a hurricane. You know? And I used to do it all the time. And I paid for it. You know, and now I'm paying for it. And that makes sense. But some people, they get terminal cancer and there's no explanation for it. And we're like, why? And this, okay, that makes sense. You know, I get it. You don't have to have an explanation for me, God. You know, but in the other places we question, why is that? It doesn't seem to make sense. And then sometimes God asks us to do things. Like he asked Jacob to break social conventions here. To, to break rank, to, to break up the protocol, and to just do things a different way. And sometimes God tells us to go against the grain. Sometimes he tells us to do things like share our faith with someone else when it's completely inappropriate in our society today to speak my faith to someone else. You know, and yet God calls us to do it. Sometimes he tells us to confront people with things that we don't want to. And it doesn't make sense. Sometimes God just asks us to do things or does things around us that don't make sense. In this situation, with Ephraim and Manasseh, God never explains himself. He never tells us why he switches. And it does leave us to question. And it's supposed to leave us to question. That's the point. If God wanted us to, to just get a quick answer, he would have given it to us. But he wants us to think about it. And as I've been reflecting on it and thinking about this moment where God breaks rank and does something different randomly, seemingly randomly, what is it that we can learn? about the situations in our lives when God does things that don't make sense or asks us to do things that don't make sense. Three principles I think we need, to, we, we need to glean from the story. One is this. There's one God who's sovereign over all things, and this God has an ability to see way far into the future where we can't see. And what doesn't make sense now might make sense then. If my boys get, if my boys get Christmas money, you know, for Christmas, and they, they get the same amount of money, I might think that one of my boys is really good with money so far and he knows what he wants and he puts a little aside and figures out what he wants and, and does good things with his money. The other boy I might think he's just like, I'm going to spend it all on gumballs, man. And just like, you know, and, and he doesn't think it through. As his dad, I'm thinking, I see the difference between these two boys. And I might say that how they're allowed to spend their Christmas money 
is different for the two of them because I've got to do something with one of them that I don't have to do with the other. And because of that, I'm seeing down the future and saying at some point they're going to have a bigger wallet that they have to deal with and I've got to help them get there. But I might say to the one son, all right, you can do whatever you want with your money. And the other son, I might say, I, we're going to have to budget this a little bit. And they might look at me in that moment and say, that's incredibly unfair, Dad. That is so not fair. Of course, the one son, doesn't matter if it's the fair or not because affects him just fine. He can do whatever he wants. But the other son, who it's negatively impacting, that's not fair. But what he doesn't understand is there's one dad who's sovereign over his life a little bit <laughs> and that I can see a little bit further than he can and I'm trying to help him. God knows that when the tribes of Israel go into the promised land years, years later, they'll come up to the Jordan River and before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land, there's two tribes, Reuben, the oldest son, and Manasseh, the oldest son of Joseph. Both of them, the two who are supposed to be the firstborn guys, they say, instead of crossing over into the Jordan, we want our inheritance on this side of the land, on this side of the Jordan. And they never enter into the promised land. And looking back, it looks pretty smart that Ephraim was the one who got blessed. He's the one who took the step of faith and crossed the Jordan and had to go fight the big Canaanites in order to get his land, where Manasseh settled on this side and never took the blessing that God really had for him. And so maybe in some ways it was the tribe itself who was making the decision, but God saw way into the future and said, this is the way it's going to be, and so he blessed him accordingly. Sometimes God can see a lot further down the road than we can. Second thing, number two. The sovereign one, the God who's sovereign over all, he can also see a whole lot wider than we can. Picture this. There is a guy who's the director of, the mar of marketing in his company. And it's a mid-sized company. And he's, this guy's genius. I mean, his marketing schemes are absolutely phenomenal. And so if, over the last year, when he took over, they've grown sales by 100% in this company, and it's all been because of this guy's work in marketing, and it's just taken off, and they're doing a bang-up job. It's, it's wonderful. So in the last couple months, he got his team together, and he's like, I have this new idea, and it, it, this is revolutionary, man. This is going to be perfect. So they work really hard. They do all their research. They get a proposal together. They, they, they come to the boss, and they pitch it all. They have the PowerPoint presentation. They have all the pie charts. They have all the information, the data, the stats. They get it. They present it. The, the, the president of the company reads through the whole thing, and it just blows his mind. And he's like, you guys are phenomenal, man. You're like the best marketing crew of all time. You, you guys are like a dream marketing department. This is awesome. And how much is this going to cost us? And the guys are like, it's not going to cost a cent. We, we got this within the budget. It's figured out within the budget. We don't have to bump the budget at all. And he's like, oh, man, you guys could not have done a better job. This thing is totally like, it's perfect. It's going to work. But you know what? We're not going to do it. Sorry, guys, but we're not going to do it. And they're like, what? You've got to be kidding me. Like, we have proven ourselves over and over again in the last year. We've thought this thing through. You even said it was perfect. Why wouldn't you do it? And he just says, I'm not going to talk about this right now. We're not doing it. All right? Good job. You did great work. I'm proud of you, but we're not doing it. See ya. See, what's happening is the president of the company recognizes. He knows not just the marketing department. He knows all the other departments. And what's happening is, is in manufacturing... They're having a complete problem with their infrastructure. And they are having all sorts of flaws in the product that they're putting out. And he knows customer service, and customer service is getting all these calls about the problems that they're having with the product. And what he's thinking is, this marketing scheme is unbelievable, and the problem is it's too good. Because if we do it right now, we're going to increase our sales again, and what we're going to end up doing is selling more faulty products. And until we get this thing worked out, 
then I don't want to increase our sales because it's going to take our brand name and drag it through the mud. And in the long term, it's not going to help us because he sees a lot wider than the marketing guy. But he can't come back and just tell the marketing guy, hey, I'd love to do this and we'll do it. But these guys are dropping the ball over here. He can't dime them out or else there will be disunity in the company and there will be all this like tension in the company. And so he's trying to keep the peace by not telling them what's going on over here and affirming what they're doing but still not doing what they think is fair. Sometimes in our lives, what God's doing has nothing to do with us. It has to do with people around us. Sometimes we go through suffering simply so that the people watching can see the character of God work through us. Sometimes we want blessing and we think that the blessing should be there. It makes all the sense in the world. We've been praying for this thing. Picture this church. Say there's something we want to happen at this church. And we're just praying, God, this is what we really need right now. It makes sense. It makes sense for your kingdom. It makes sense for for our specific situation. But say whatever it is that we want right now is somehow going to negatively affect Calvary Baptist Church, who's right here, who you can see from our parking lot. And God's trying to do something in Calvary Baptist Church. And say the way what we're doing would, would negatively affect that. And so God doesn't want to bless it because he's afraid it'll stop what he's trying to do over there. He's playing team ball and he sees a big wide picture. And what he's doing sometimes doesn't make sense to us because there's one God who is sovereign over all. And he sees the furthest into the future and he sees the widest and the things that don't make sense in my life, well, they don't make sense because I can't see that far and I can't see that wide. But sometimes there's one other thing and here's the third thing. Sometimes it's not about what's in the future. Sometimes it's not about how wide it is. Sometimes... It's just because it's what God wants. You know, tonight at 8.30, fortunately, my boys are going to be in bed because there's going to be a football game on and I'm going to watch that football game and the birds are going to take first place in the division and it's going to be a beautiful thing. I'm sorry, Christine, but the, the Giants are going down and Owen couldn't be here with us because his dad is ill and he's up in Boston, but I would say the same thing to Owen. You know, it's, it's a shame. Michael Vick is going to be sovereign over the game and it's going to be like that. But the, the good news is that my boys are going to be in bed because a Sunday afternoon football game sometimes is not easy to watch because my boys are there. And sometimes there are reasons why we do things in our house. Like, okay, if... If uh, we're used to playing a game, but it's only a four-person game, and the boys want to play the game, but we're having company over, and there's too many kids coming, I might say to the boys, there's nothing wrong with this game. I'm glad you want to play it, but we can't play it tonight because it's not going to work for everyone because I'm seeing wider than them. And just like the thing with the money, I might see into the future and have to deal with them differently. But every now and then, I just say, you know what, guys? I want you to be quiet today because I want to watch the game. Okay? And it's not about you. And it's not about what's wider, and it's not about what's further. It's about the fact that I want to watch the game. God is God. And he owes us no explanation whatsoever for anything he does. If a farmer has cattle, and he wants the cattle to go from one area to another area, does he have to explain to his cattle why they have to go there? No. God created us. He is God. Does he need to explain himself to us? No. Is it our job to trust that he's good, even if he doesn't seem good in the moment? Yes, because he said he is. And if he's God, he can see the whole thing. And if he wants to do things a certain way, we've got to trust him. And if he says he's good, we've got to believe it, even if it doesn't feel like he is in the moment. Why? Oh, for the same reason I tell my boys when there's no explanation left. Because I said so. And when God says so, 
There's this wonderful little statement that I learned when I was a kid. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And before we need to know that there's a reason way out in the future, and before we need to know that somehow this affects my neighbors in a way that positively impacts them, I need to know something deeper. I need to know who's in charge. I need to know that God's in charge of my life. And the thought that can shatter my world, but the thought that can also rebuild my world, is this simple thought that there is one God who is sovereign over all things. We're told this, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. When God speaks, it's truth. It's not just truth. It's a person. It's God. He's in charge. He said it. Because He said so, I'm going to believe Him. The good news is this, that He's the author of my life. I'm not the author of my life. He's the tailor of my robes of righteousness. I'm not the tailor. That's great because He can see into the future and He can see real wide. And, and He says that He's going to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I don't have the ability to work all things together for good. I'm not sovereign. He does have the ability. But what comes along with that is I have to trust him. The bad news, I'm not even the main character in the story. His son Jesus is. He's the main character. I'm, when I get together with all of you guys and we're the church together, we are a supporting cast. We're the bride of Christ. As one individual, I'm not even the supporting cast. I'm just one little like, finger on the, on the actor of the supporting cast. You know? But when we come together, we are the bride of Christ who's the supporting actress in this great story that God is unveiling about his son. It's not all about me, so it doesn't have to make sense to me. It's a lot bigger than me. But what I do have to recognize is the best possible life that I could live is the life that he's designing, because he's the tailor. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one in charge. And he's the only one who's good, who's really, really good. Thank goodness that there's one God who's sovereign over Joseph, sovereign over Jacob, sovereign over Abraham, sovereign over Israel, sovereign over me and you and Pottstown and USA and Globe and all the time. He's sovereign over it all. And I trust him. Sometimes I have a really tough time trusting him. But I've got to choose to trust him because I've got to believe that the one who sees it all is the one who's good. Let's pray.